This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, Jerry, this is very exciting. This is our first ever Wheelhouse podcast episode from inside an actual radio booth. You and I are sitting inside the visiting radio booth here at beautiful Camden Yards, a timeless ballpark. And thank you for making the, the kind of muggy walk all the way over from the hotel here. I, I, I feel a little disheveled. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to go back to see my beautician after sweating it up on the muggy walk from the hotel to the ballpark. But uh, no big deal. I think uh, got a little extra exercise in today. Well, since we are on the road, that means there's no Colin O'Keefe here. It does mean, however, that Gary Hill is here. He is running the master dials for us. G-Man, thanks for chiming in and uh, helping out with this one. Anytime. You know, Happy thing, to help. The thing that's great about this podcast is I, I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, but I feel like this episode in particular, this is the only podcast, I'm going to say ever, of any podcast of all time, where two participants either currently have or have had a dog named Satchel. That is right. I did it. How, how did you know I had a dog named Satchel? Because... You said it on the podcast. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, 20, we're 26 episodes deep into this thing, so there's been a lot of airtime. I understand. There's, I, I forgot all about the, the Satchel episode, but I did, in fact, have Because you've, multi- you've had multiple dogs named after multiple great baseball players, correct? Correct. And what else did we talk? What else were you working with before? Uh, Bob Gibson. Okay. We had, uh, Lou Gehrig, my current French Bulldog, or the, my little Frenchie. Now, do you call him, like, when you call for him for dinner, do you say Lou Gehrig, or no. do you say Lou? Louis. 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 Okay. Or Lou. So only when he's done something really bad, do you go first and last name off? Yes. <laughs> and, and then my wife tells him, honey, don't call him that, because then he won't know who you're calling. Like, All right. But, uh, Gary, uh, how old is, is Satchel? Satchel's coming up on two. Okay. And what kind of dog you want to see you? Satchel? I'm sure Labradoodle. Labradoodle. There we go. There's Gary's even ready with the That's picture. an imposing looking. It, it, when you said, when you <laughs> yeah. said Labradoodle, I'm thinking, okay, uh-huh. it's a, but that is an imposing looking Labradoodle. Uh-huh. And, who's, and whose dog is it? is it? Is it the kid's dog? Is it your dog? It's is everyone's it, it's, dog. It's all, Everyone loves the dog. Okay. Yeah. Right, She's enough. great. I'll get, Satchel Page is one of Gary's all-time favorites, yeah. hence the name for the dog. So. Should be. Yeah. I have a ton of great Satchel Page stories shared with me by the great Buck O'Neill back in the day. It's a... You know, I, 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 not to get too sidetracked here, but when we were in Kansas City, I really regretted not being able to talk about that story of you and Buck O'Neill talking about the Negro Leagues together in your home, right? Sitting in my basement. I mean, yeah. it just. That was the day my hair went on fire. I can't even imagine what that would be like. Uh, next, uh, next time we're in Kansas City, we're definitely gonna t- we have talked about it on the podcast already, but we will revisit that at some point. Well, uh, this is uh, episode 26 of the Wheelhouse, and uh, we are just about to begin this four-game series here against the Baltimore Orioles to finish up this three-city East Coast road trip. Uh, we, we're going to talk about the road trip. We will talk about Felix, who goes tonight. Uh, a very nice award for Nelson Cruz, we just found out a few minutes ago, has uh, been honored on the Mariners' DH. But first, Jerry, I mean, we've been in two of the great food cities in the country, New York City and Boston. Tell me the best thing you've eaten so far. 
Oh, where do I start? Uh, well, first of all, I will say the fact that we were in New York and Boston has delayed the 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 latest episode of the Wheelhouse. Because we my both daughter, been eating. <laughs> yeah, my younger daughter. She, my, she lives in Hong Kong. I don't know if I've mentioned what? that. What? Yeah, my younger daughter. She's twenty three. She'll be twenty four in November. She lives in Hong Kong. She works for Disney. And, she's not uh, your Pacific Rim coordinator. She, she sent me a text the other day. She said, "Let's go." It's been like ten days since we've had a podcast. Seriously, I, she did. We got a listener in Hong Kong, yeah. and, and we do. We have one, and and I told her that at, I, I said, "Honey, I have to. We, we've got we've got ball games, and I've got culinary delight to check in on in New York and in Boston." Uh, the best thing I've had on this road trip on Thursday, my wife and I stayed over. The team traveled to Boston post game on Thursday. Tammy and I stayed in New York, and we had dinner at Butter, Alex Garnaschelli's restaurant, and I had a, which was just before we went to see Bruce Springsteen on Broadway, which is the single greatest night of entertainment that I've experienced as a, as a Jersey kid growing. I was a pretty big thrill, but we went to Butter in New York, and I had the smoke, the the tobacco smoked pork chop, which when I saw it on the menu, I thought, I'm pretty sure I would never make that for myself. I have to try it. <laughs> And it was one of the best things I've ever eaten, hands down. It was just awesome. So is it like smoked and then grilled or just smoked the whole way? No, smoked. and So it was smoked first, grilled. So uh-huh. it had nice grill marks sure. on the top. It was a really dark, almost like a coffee color to it. It served with some nice black-eyed peas that were cr- crispy uh, with, with some scallions and shallot. Uh, and, and there's really nothing else. That was the whole plate. And it was gorgeous to to look at it was unbelievable I, as soon as i took a bite out i said to tammy this is one of the best things i've ever eaten in my life and she had something that was the best thing she's ever had correct well on monday night we went to bobby flay's restaurant gato we had the off night and we went to gato in in the village and tammy proclaimed it when we were done the best meal that she's ever eaten but for me the highlight was meeting bobby flay which was I, I, I told her, honey, if Bobby Flay walks in the restaurant right now, I'm going to scream like a schoolgirl. <laughs> and he did. Yeah, but I didn't. You know, I, I, I maintained my cool, and, but we did we did ask for him to come over to the table and, uh, you know, introduced ourselves. And I told him, I'm a big fan. I, I watched the shows, and he's taught me how to cook in some way. Did you say I'm Jared Apoto of the Wheelhouse Podcast? I, I did not. <laughs> I did not. It come was on. moving a little too fast for me, Aaron. Yeah. Uh, I have so many different directions I want to go with all the things you just said. First of all, when I was – I had was just about to go work my third year broadcasting. This would have been before no my second year broadcasting. This would have been this before the summer of two thousand and eight. I was about to go off to the Cape League to call games for the Bourne Braves. Which is pretty awesome. It was pretty great. I was working at uh, at us Sir Latab in St. Louis, and uh, Bobby Flay had just come out with one of his you know whatever dozen cookbooks, and he was coming to our location in St. Louis for a book signing. And I used my discount to buy an $80 uh, 8-inch Sir Latab skillet. Or, excuse me, uh, all-clad skillet. And why would I waste it on just a Sir Latab skillet? <laughs> and, uh, and I had him sign in black Sharpie inside the skillet uh, to Aaron, the next Iron Chef, Bobby Flay. Cut it yeah, out. which is pretty cool. Yeah. See, and all this time, I'm telling you about my Tom Seaver memorabilia. And it's, oh, yeah. It's you know, I'm, just, I'm hiding my fastball. I'm yeah. saving it for the third time through the order. You had this in the back yeah, pocket the uh, whole time. Yeah, it's pretty impressive, I know. But I'm, I'm glad I'm glad I've impressed you with it. <laughs> uh, so that's cool. I was I was pretty pumped to meet Bobby Flay. Uh, Alex Corner Shelley, my uh, cast iron cornbread recipe, which pairs very nicely with chili, as you might imagine, is hers. It's terrific. You can find it online. Everything we ate at Butter was terrific. 
The, the downside about going to some of these celebrity or Iron Chef, to, mm-hmm. we did. We hit Alex Garnaschelli's butter. We went to Gatto, Bobby Flay's place on Monday. We had an early dinner on Tuesday at Scarpetta, which is Scott Conant's Italian spot. And on on Wednesday morning, we had brunch at the National, which is Jeffrey Zakarian's place, which is right around the corner from our hotel, like a block and a half away. I I feel like uh, any meal that you will have had since is probably pretty disappointing. Which is why I needed to walk in the, <laughs> the buttery Baltimore sun to get to the ballpark today. It was to take off some of that you know tobacco smoke yes. pork chop. Uh, I will say, uh, none of the places I have visited have quite the celebrity cachet that yours uh, clearly had. But one of my favorite places in New York post-game, I'm not going to say this is the healthiest route to go, uh, but Walensky's Grill is open till 2 a.m. Of course, pe- some people probably have heard of Smith & Walensky's, the steakhouse, which there are, I think there's maybe one in... Maybe one in Vegas. Yeah, there was one in Miami. I yeah, know. I mean, like, yeah. the original is in New York, and it's not far from our hotel. And Walensky's Grill is attached to it, and it's much smaller, and it's just beautiful. It's just kind of got that old feel steakhouse to it. And they're open till 2 a.m. every morning, and so it's a great postgame stop. And one of the nights that I – we went there every night after the Yankees games. And one night I got the prime rib hash, which they make a dynamite hash brown. And it's the hash browns with shredded prime rib intermixed. Cut it out. With, Jerry, two poached eggs and a house hollandaise over the top. And at 1 o'clock in the morning, I mean at any time. Fair? Yeah, <laughs> but at 1 o'clock in the morning, if you can stomach it, that's about as good as it gets. So. And 1 o'clock in the morning, it's because the Yankee games are so quick. Yes, that's exactly why, yeah. yeah. So, so otherwise it would be 3 a.m. and you're trying to take these down. <laughs> it's not the most photogenic dish, but it was delicious, I must say. <laughs> well, uh, hey, on to baseball talk. Nelson Cruz, Jerry, this I suppose is not surprising. He was just named the American League Player of the Week. Jerry hit 500 for the week. He clobbered three home runs, one of which has made my short list as favorite Nelson Cruz home runs. That is the one off the light tower above the monster at Fenway. And an OPS of 1,500 for the week? I mean, it's ridiculous. Congrats to Nelson Cruz. Oh, it, he's done a great job. And Nelly's as timeless as Camden Yards looks. It's a, he is it's, – it's power. He's running well. I, there's – his triple in yesterday's game off of Chris Sale. <laughs> that one, that sealed his fate for the award. In a day that was otherwise unpleasant, uh, that was a that was a moment in yesterday's game when he was legging it out for the triple before he inexplicably stopped at shortstop and turned around just to make sure that they weren't going to throw him out before coasting into third base, which tells you a little bit about where he hit that ball. But sure. he was still able to turn it into a clean triple. Uh, I like the fact that Nelly, he's, he, there's more bounce in his step. You can see him long striding now and making up ground when he runs. And when Nelly has his lower half under him, he's, he is as dynamic as any hitter in the league. And in a, in a road trip in the, where we saw some of the best pitchers in the American mm-hmm. League, frankly. You know, Chris Sale yesterday was as good as anyone we've seen. Severino has, for the last year and a half, been among the, the top pitchers in baseball. And we, we saw a bunch of them. Like the stuff that, that we saw in this last six games was pretty unique. And Nelly took that week to, to have perhaps his best week of the season, and it was loud. Which, timeout, I don't know. The numbers on Chris Sale say that his fastball on average is 94 miles an hour. I mean, how, how is that possible when he was – I mean, he touched 100 multiple times. He was at, sitting, it seemed like, at 98. 
Which two games did he throw nothing but 92-mile-an-hour heaters to bring his average down? That was ridiculous. Yeah, there was the combination of physical stuff. It was three pitches. A fastball slider and changeup were on, on a 20 to 80 scouting scale. They were all 80s. The very first pitch of the game when it came flying out at 98, and and it looked the angle, the sure. nastiness was it was notable, and you thought, wow, 98. <laughs> and then the second pitch is 98, and it's and it's just as dynamic as the last. I turned around. Jeff Kingston was sitting upstairs with me, our assistant GM, and I and I turned around to him and I said, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's he is. I mean, it's it's it is really nasty what's coming out. The thing yesterday that was a little different. I mean, Chris Sale in the in the worst of times has awesome stuff, and he's and he's got that intimidation factor sure. that he brings with him to the mound. Yesterday was a different attitude altogether on, on the mound, and and I'm not sure what it was, but yeah, you know, somehow he elevated his game. I we've never seen him any better than that, and and it's, he's been in this league as a dominant pitcher for a long time, and that was some kind of special stuff yesterday. You don't see that often. Saturday night, we were joined by Tom Verducci. He was in town for that game, Mariners and the Red Sox. And Tom had an interesting point watching Nelson Cruz. And he was so impressed with just uh, with Nelson Cruz, with everything about Nelly, and particularly the fact that he is a slugger who can still hit for an average, as we've seen for his entire time with the Mariners. But watching Nelson Cruz hit, Tom made the point that he was really reminded of Jim Tomei from the standpoint of a swing that Jerry just kind of feels like it will be there for Nelly. Like kind of forever, right? And that the DH is a position that is now extending his career for who knows how long. And it's re- what's remarkable, and we've talked about this before with Nelly, he's having his best years in his late 30s, which is phenomenal. You just don't see hitters do that in today's time. And, you know, for, for Nelson, the, the combination of a very simple swing where for a big guy, and, and Nelson is big both in height and in, in width. Mm-hmm, sure. <laughs> I mean, he is a big, broad slugger. Usually the big, broad slugger has a long swing. Nelly does not. He has a very compact, direct-to-the-ball swing. It is, as you saw in Fenway, when you're hitting balls off light towers, right. that's the stuff of legend. I yeah. mean, I've heard light tower power. I don't think I've actually seen it before. Yeah, only in the night. movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, until then. But it's a, just the absolute, the, the absolute simplicity of the swing really leads you to believe that as long as he has good health and he takes care of himself some kind of well, as long as he has good health, there's no reason why he can't be a productive to star level offensive player in this league well into his 40s because that's, it's, it's different when you start seeing players lose their legs. And that was a bit of a concern earlier this year with Nelly because he was having so many lower body issues. It's what you saw with David Ortiz and his feet and his knees at the latter stage of his career while he remained as productive as he did. It's what you see sometimes with those big sluggers who, frankly, are carrying around a lot of body. And Nelly does it in a, in a different way. You know, and I think what's remarkable about this season for him is he's done this. He hasn't eaten meat all year. So that, that big, I'm a big, burly, strong guy, he is really killing it in the weight room. And he's he's been on a vegetable and, and proteins diet that don't include meat. Yeah, how's that? I mean, it's incredible that he – because I asked him earlier this year what is his – if he's got a day off and he would eat anything that he wanted. He said a cheeseburger and fries. And then he said, but I don't eat cheeseburgers anymore. Anymore. Yeah. <laughs> he's, e- he's eating greens. He's eating greens. He's eating fruits. And he's eating uh, beans is where he's getting most of his protein is from beans. Legumes. <laughs> Yeah, if you will, <laughs> if you will, some if crispy black eyed peas. This is what you learn yeah. working at Surly. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you, you referenced the uh, first 
two-thirds of this road trip. Obviously, a, a rough start to it in both New York and Boston. You mentioned the stellar pitching the Mariners saw, and unfortunately, some really good pitching that the Mariners had to play for the most part without Gene Segura. I have to imagine that it kind of helped a couple or compound the frustrations on the field for the guys. Yeah, you know, I'm, for for a lot of this the last five or six weeks, when when our club has been going as good as we were going, Gene was the driving force, and and this road trip playing without him as he's dealing with an infection in his forearm, I, we, I think he's going to be in the lineup tonight here he in is. Baltimore. We just saw it. It's a, which is a thrill. I know yesterday was getting a little better, but he, he had a, you know, when he scored the run, if you remember with the unique slide at home plate versus the Angels uh, in the day game, the getaway game where we came back and won that game, uh, he, he actually cut his forearm and dirt got in it and and created a, an infection in cellulitis it, under the skin and it started swelling to the point where it looked like he had an extra head growing off of his really? forearm and we had to have it drained and you know there was some concern that it was going to cause for a dl time but clearly he's missed the the front six games of this road trip which is or at least five and uh not feeling great for the couple of days prior to that and he's been such a driving force for us but with or without Gene, we just hadn't played very well. And, you know, in, in New York, we saw pitching stuff night after night, whether it was whether it was first Herman, then it was lasagna. Uh, <laughs> I, believe they, I believe they do call him Johnny Lasagna. Yeah. Uh, I wrote it down phonetically. I'll have to go back to the scorebook. It was – Louis Sega. Uh, was that right, Jer- Gary? I'd have to look – yeah, you're pretty close, Jerry. I know Rick and I spent some – more time than usual going over names that day. Let's put it that way. There's, there are some unique ones. But, but I, I think the Yankees guys reference him as Johnny Lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> you see John Sterling? <laughs> Johnny Lasagna. <laughs> Susan? Have fun it. with that one. Uh, and then, obviously, Severino. And, sure. and, and then what we saw in Boston, the combination right. of seeing a knuckleballer and then you know two of the best stuff left-handers in baseball. We, we, we did a remarkable job in Boston of bouncing back with the bats and really battling. And our, our bullpen just had a tough time holding these lineups down. And so many, so many foul ball, balls, foiling pitches, you know, 25 pitch innings where we're just having to fight through it. And sometimes that happens, you know. And, and having been through the American League East for a couple of years, you know, in a scouting capacity, you see that night after night when it's, it is 20, 25 pitch innings. The games take four hours, especially Yankees, Red Sox, when you get in those ballparks. And you, you do that long enough, you give, them, you give up what for us is an uncharacteristic walk and then, and then give up the inevitable homer, which you're going to give up in those ballparks. And the next thing you know, you lose a couple of games that you should have won, frankly. There's no doubt, though, that the schedule turns. And this is not to say that Scott Service is not treating – these games any differently than he was against the Red Sox or the Yankees. But starting tonight, you will be playing seven straight against the two worst teams in baseball by a win-loss margin. That is the Orioles. Then when we come back home and see the Kansas City Royals. Well, I mean, it's, it certainly feels like we get a fresh start mm-hmm. after a couple of really difficult series where you're feeling strangled. But, you know, each day is new, and in this league, everybody can beat you, especially in these, in these ballparks. And, you know, it, as, as timeless as Camden Yards is, uh, it, it happens to be very tiny. It is petite in some areas. <laughs> it is. It is a. It, it's it's built to order. You know. It, it, <laughs> so you know, with as much power as the Orioles have, and on a given night, they, they, they could go out there and drop five or six homers in a game, which they've done, and and we know that's a, always a threat. So you can't come in here believing that these guys are anything less than imposing. Fortunately for us, as much as we've struggled over these last six days, 
we have built some equity in our record. You mm-hmm. know, we, we built up a little bit of cachet that we were able to, to use. And as we've gotten through the 15 games of this, what we thought was kind of we've referenced it as that gauntlet in our schedule. We came out of it seven and eight. You know, the order probably wasn't what we had hoped for, but we played the, the teams with the exception of Cleveland, the teams that, that are either in front of us or directly in back of us in the standings. And when we played them to, to roughly a tie, we just did it in an order that made you feel worse about the fact <laughs> that you tied. <laughs> well, as your daughter had pointed out, uh, we haven't recorded a podcast in a little while, and we have not spoken since the end of that last homestand and the four-game series, which was a split against the Red Sox at Safeco Field. And there have been so many people, Jerry, in the fan base and in the media who have commented about that, especially the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday portion of that homestand to end things, the sizzle the vibe, kind of the, the caffeine level of Safeco Field for those three days and just how how incredible it was. What was your perspective on just the overall feel of Safeco Field, and the weather didn't hurt either, for those games at the end of that homestand? I, honestly, it was awesome. It was awesome to see the fan base come out. It was awesome to play the Red Sox at Safeco and feel like we had by far the dominant fan base, which is not common, sure. you know, especially with the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Blue Jays. So, you know, for our fam, fans to come out to fill the ballpark and to really energize the environment in that way was so exciting. It was exciting for the players. And really, over the course of this last 10 days or so, because it, it started to click a little bit with the Angels series. And, you know, we have played much of the last two weeks in almost a playoff-like environment because that's what Yankee Stadium and Boston are like on most nights because they're generally packed. The fans are engaged. There's there's a high level of intensity going on. We saw that for the last seven days at home as well with the Red Sox and the Angels. And it, it, it gave our players, especially those who hadn't experienced that before, a chance to play in those big environments. I think Wade LeBlanc, you know, during his Saturday, uh, he shut down the Red Sox, which is a difficult thing to do. And uh, afterward, he mentioned something about never having pitched in front of a crowd like that. How about that? Uh, this guy's been pitching. It, he, he came through the SEC and crazy baseball south, you know, at, at Alabama back in, in the early 2000s. He has pitched in the big leagues on and off for the last 10 years. And for him to, to reference that moment, I look at this, despite the fact that we've effectively gone with the sister kisser through 15 games, it is uh, – it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes there's I yes i said it yeah. i said it uh we've 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 bumped seven and eight through the 15 games the experience has been unbelievably valuable for our team uh, it has been unbelievably valuable because in the middle of a season you rarely get the opportunity to practice for what it's like to play in those postseason moments or coming down the stretch when, when every pitch every out every run means something significant and I think our players just got that up close and personal for the last two weeks. And though our record isn't better for it in this past week, we are probably better for it as we move forward and grow. We've seen some really good things on the mound recently from Felix. We'll be seeing Felix here tonight in Baltimore. What is it that you know of or have seen in terms of the difference of him on the mound or in his week of preparation leading up to things? We know that he's throwing off the mound in between starts, which is different for him. What, what is it that you've taken away the most? You know, he is. He's throwing in between his outings, and, and that's new. He's, he's not done that really for a number of years now, specifically over the three years that I've been here with the Mariners. Felix was not a get-a-throwing day in between. 
And there is value in that. It, there's value in that to kind of keep the feel for your pitches. There's value in that to keep you moving so where you're not getting too dormant as the starting pitcher uh, in those four down days. Felix has also started to hit the gym in a little different way or more aggressively than he has in years past. I know he's worked with Lorena Martin. He has visited with, with a lot of our high-performance people to try to come up with a different plan. And, you know, I, I think anything is, is something when you're looking to, to find that, that key that, that helps you move forward. And Felix has, to his credit, been willing to try some new things this year and here in these last two weeks, three weeks, we're starting to see some of the benefit or the result of him being more active and more engaged in those four days between starts. And as a result, the, the I think three of his last four outings have been not just good, but excellent. And, you know, it's, it's very tough to pitch against that lineup in New York. And I wish we would have been able to get a little deeper in the game. But to go out there and shut them down like he did, you know, through the five innings, is it's notable. And and hopefully we can get an outing similar to that tonight and, and we keep building on the good things. Not to digress too much, but we do have a room full of three guys who can get buried quickly in old box scores. Uh, Gary, have you – did you happen to notice, Gary, the – two DHs the last time that Felix pitched in this ballpark. Oh, no. Which was in May of 2011. No. Two designated hitters for the Mariners and the Orioles in May of 2011. The last time Felix was on the mound at Camden Yards, Vladimir Guerrero in his final season with the Orioles. Final seasons, period, but with the Orioles. And Jack Cust, the designated hitter that day for the Mariners. Two peas in a pod. Does that that (laughs) time stamp Felix's last start here in Baltimore better than almost anything? Man, that's amazing. Glad Guerrero. <laughs> now I mean, in the Hall of Fame. He's in the yeah. Hall of Fame. Yeah, he's in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Again, not to digress, but I thought both of you guys would probably enjoy that. Um, well, when you look at things uh, kind of going else, uh, on elsewhere around the organization, Jerry, uh, how about your Travs? Arkansas Travelers clinched the first half in the Texas League. Congratulations. Uh, you and Andy McKay, Mariners Farm Director, have a team that is guaranteed to go to the playoffs. Yes, which is uh, it, it's always important to us. We, we stress winning at the minor league levels. Uh, the Travs won this year. They went down. They, they actually had a magic number of one with three to play and managed to not win the first two nights and, and took it down to the final Seriously? day. And they, and they won. And, uh, you know, they finally won the third of the three. So they clinched the first half. They will play in the Texas League uh, uh, playoffs come September, which really thrills me because, A, they're a great affiliate and, and they're wonderful people. And last year, in what was a, a couple of years that have been fairly successful winning seasons for our minor league teams, Last year's Travs team wasn't very good, and it was a last-place team in the Texas League. Uh, my friend Russ Meeks, who owns and operates the, the Travelers, mentioned to me last year at season's end, well, we were very consistent. We finished last in the first half and last <laughs> in the second half. And, uh, you know, this year we were, we were very happy to, to give them a, a playoff team and maybe one of the better offensive clubs that Arkansas has had in the last couple of decades. It's a really good offensive team. They score runs. You know, particularly right now with the run that Braden Bishop is on, uh, UW zone. Uh, Braden Bishop, for the last five weeks or so, has been as hot as anybody in the minor leagues not named Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Right. Very nice. Uh, but he is, uh, he's, he's on a terrific roll now, hitting north of 300 for the season. He does control the strike zone well, and, and he's starting to show some power, some impact in the gaps. And he always plays a great defense in center field. And, and he's really, after what was a really – slow first four weeks of the season has gotten himself on track 
And we're starting to see some positivity develop there and in other areas of our system with our bullpens, you know, combinations of guys like Matt Festa and David McKay and Art Warren and and you mean Seth Elledge. Art Warren, yeah, big Art. Uh, Seth Elledge and Wyatt Mills. There's so, so many guys in our system that are throwing the ball extraordinarily well out of the bullpen. And, and then this week, too, was or, or I guess in this last week, we had the, the pleasure of watching a pocket of our best prospects go play in the California League All-Star game and really jump out and, and kind of set the tone in that game, including homers by Kyle Lewis and Evan White, uh, a couple of doubles from Joe Rizzo. And, and I think you, the Mariners kind of took over the Cal League All-Star game, despite the fact that Modesto is not winning games. There's a nice pocket of prospects there we think are going to help us in the not-too-distant future. Gary, does, does Rick know about Joe Rizzo? I mean, he has to, right? I mean, I am surprised thing. we don't have – Here's the thing. If I feel like – and Rick's not here for those who right. are curious. Rick is not in the room. But I feel like we can still talk about this. Like, if Rick knew – about Joe Rizzo, I, I feel, feel like, like we would a, be getting we'd get more a Joe updates. Rizzo update yes. every day. <laughs> yes, I think that's right. I think what that's right. Yeah. Oh, tough day for Joe. Yeah. Oh, for four. Well, those Rizzos, they'll come back. Oh, what a day for Joe Rizzo. In for the cycle. I mean, it would dominate like every inning. I feel like. Yeah. I, so is this we, our fault? It feels like he should know. Can right? I add some dimension to the Joe Rizzo conversation? Please. Uh, first, a, a second round pick. We thought one of the most polished high school hitters in the country in 2016 joe's not a a fellow who's tall of stature so there's a relation with rick <laughs> correct <laughs> but here's where the relation may depart let's call it uh other than the fact that he can hit a couple of doubles in the cal league all-star game and, and was a polished hitter coming out of high school joe shares the vertically challenged uh, uh you know portion of sure. the, the the rick riz program but it, it's He's, he's broad, he has power in his stroke, and he also sports, I believe, a size 16 shoe. What? <laughs> on his 5'9", five, 5'10", five, no. frame. Yes. He's sub six feet with a 16-foot? Yes, which look like something in the neighborhood of skis. It's, a, yeah, it's, it's fabulous. I feel like he has to strap him down when he walks out on the field. That's amazing. I'm honestly surprised that he was drafted in the second round with that profile. I mean, that's like that's, – that, It's phenomenal. Maybe he was a first-rounder, but he got dropped to the second round because, because he's disproportionate. I mean, that, so, really. so Joe Rizzo, picture if you will, Joe Rizzo standing next to Manny Machado. Uh-huh. Manny Machado strapping 6'3", right. 6'4", athletic-looking shortstop, third baseman, gold gloves on the podium, who I believe also sports a size 16 shoe. It's a, he's got big sleds. Joe Rizzo would would be like the equivalent of looking at Correa and 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 judge something, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, something like that. And uh, and and the the boats are about the same on on Joe Rizzo and Machado, and they're both big man shoes. Is Rizzo a good runner? Uh, he runs okay. You know, Joe's a pretty sneaky athlete, and he he, he plays third base at, at, with, with that profile that dimension it's it's phenomenal when I mean, you you can't help but look at his feet when you're scouting <laughs> <laughs> right. I wish but he's so. a heck of a, he's a nice little prospect and, and joe's like he's played young for every level he gets on base you know he does have kind of that hit tool and when you're leaning on the the turtle the batting cage mm -hmm. watching the the kids take bp in the spring there's a different sound when it comes off of joe rizzo's bat and my guess is is because he's grounded in different ways <laughs> than the others that's beautiful. Yeah. That is wonderful. Well, I cannot wait for spring training now. And I I feel like we should just let Rick discover Joe Rizzo on his own. Okay. 
And well, we'll we'll feel that one out. We got plenty of time. Are you ready for stump, JD? Oh, God. Okay. bring it. I have I have a backup question in case you get this one immediately. It has nothing to do with numbers. It has everything to do with awards. Awards. A little different this time. We are in the home of the Bambino. Right. Babe Ruth from Baltimore. So this is a Babe Ruth centric question. If you haven't noticed it, I tried to make them topical. Um can you tell me, Jerry, how many MVP awards Babe Ruth won in his career? None. <laughs> I like your conviction. That is incorrect. Yeah. He did win one MVP award. But there's there's now why did you think he didn't win any? Because there's in Babe Ruth's heyday, there's the it's almost like being the prodigal son. The the expectations on Babe Ruth were so different than everybody else. He's hitting 370 with right. 60 homers and 150 RBI and Mickey Cochran will win the MVP <laughs> hitting, you know, hitting 3 and no offense. Like Mickey right. Cochran was great, but you know, hitting 325 with 18 homers and dry, you know that like the the way the expectations on Babe Ruth were so much different, but the the rules surrounding the MVP were different. There was a rule during the early years of the MVP award that that precluded you from winning twice. Correct. So there was a period of time, and it, and it crossed over into the dynamic like the 1920s when Babe was doing Babe things, sure. where he wasn't allowed to win a second time. So, you know, it, and I don't, I can't tell you what year that stopped, but it was in the 30s when it stopped when he was now starting. It's funny because I have all that information, Jerry. <laughs> Um, okay, so the original MVP, I think this is fascinating, because if you go to Babe's baseball reference page, you would expect to see MVP, 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 right? Like seven, eight-time MVP, right? He's won it one time. The original MVP award was actually called the Chalmers Award, named after the auto company, and it was around from 1911 to 1914. Now, in 1914, Babe made his major league debut. He played five games. So in the final year of the first version of the MVP, the Chalmers Award, I mean, Babe played for less than a week, right? So he's not going to be a part of it. From 1915 to 1921, apparently Chalmers wanted to put their money towards exhaust pipes and not towards sponsoring the MVP. <laughs> and they said, we're 86 in the award, we're out. So there simply was not an MVP award during Babe's, really some of his best years as a two-way guy, right, both on the mound and at the plate. Now, in the first year that the award came back, and it was actually the MVP award, that was 1922. George Sisler won it. I mean, he had 246 hits. Yeah. Okay, he hit 420. Yeah. It was a pretty good. It was year. justified. Yeah, yeah, it was a pretty was good year. Now, the second year of now the MVP award, Babe won it. His only year winning the MVP was in 1923, and he was a monster. He hit 393, 41 bombs, an OPS of 1300. He drove in 130, and to your point earlier, Jerry, he couldn't win it again. It wasn't until 1931. Where they lifted the rule, this ridiculous rule, by the way, that if you've won it once, like, are we in grade school? If you've won it once, you can't win it again. <laughs> like, everybody's got to have a shot it's at it. Now, once it Ribbons got, for participation? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Pl- the babe had plenty of ribbons. So, in 1931, when he was now eligible to win it again, he's at the, the very twilight of his career, right? He comes in fifth that year. In 1932, he comes in sixth in the MVP. Still putting up good numbers, right? Very good numbers, in fact, but not... Maybe the MVP numbers. So I, I just find it fascinating that the Babe, like maybe the most iconic player ever, has one won MVP. MVP. Yeah. 
Yeah, I actually, th- and, and in my mind's eye, I thought that it never happened because you, you weren't allowed to win twice. And Babe Ruth, the expectations were always off the charts high. So guys with inferior productivity were, were winning awards around them because nobody could compare. Do you know what the updated scoreboard tally looks like now, by the way, on Stump JD? Uh, I, Do you want me to say it? Four to one? I, oh, no, you're better than that. I think it's I think it's three to two me. Three to two? Yeah. I did have a backup because I thought there was, a, there was a pretty good chance that you would know that. I have ex- high expectations for you. Gary and I were talking about this, and we couldn't believe it. At Fenway Park, Pesky's pole, right? Right. Guess how many home runs Johnny Pesky <laughs> hit at Fenway Park. Total? Total home runs for Johnny Pesky at Fenway Park. The guy that a foul pole is named after for hitting home runs to it. Six home runs, Jerry. In his lifetime. <laughs> At Fenway Park, he hit six home runs, and he's got a pole named after him. How great is that? You're That's living awesome. right if that happens. That is awesome. And maybe maybe it is. that it is, That is a cozy, let's call it Camden, Camden Yards-esque sure. you know, little nook down there in the what right field corner. Was it 304? Is that right? 302. 302? Yeah, 304 would be uh, a little more spacious. Maybe five of the six landed there. Yeah, the well, that's what Gary got a pole. Gary was like, can we find a spray chart somewhere? Yeah, for Johnny I'd love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing they weren't. They were on the back of a napkin. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Well, uh, we'll get to some uh, listener questions here. This is uh, this is a good one. Jane in Spokane uh, has a very simple question. What would your walk-up song be? I've actually had one, as luck would have it. I want to live from the Ramones was my walk-up song. Is this like? Is this like a no? Can we get that? Can we, you have that on cue, Gary? No, I didn't. I didn't have that ready. Shockingly, <laughs> <laughs> I did. I had that. I want to live from the Ramones was my walk-up song. I think for a uh, for for a period of time that that was uh, it. It it kind of got me going. Sure. It was, it was a it was a favorite of mine coming through high school and and never dawned on me because my first year in the league we didn't have walk-up songs you know there, there was nothing when you came into a game you just came into a game and it, <laughs> you know the organ guy played the, the organ but uh you know shortly after that by the by the mid-90s walk-up songs were a thing and 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 i remember day i was a rookie and i was pitching in milwaukee uh and i was coming into a game it was, I think it was the first time I'd ever pitched in Milwaukee. And I came into a game, it's the eighth inning, and it's kind of a big situation in the game. I think we had a one-run lead. And I've got two runners on base and Robin Yount's up. And and uh, as I'm running out of the bullpen, I, I they, they're playing the Ramones, I Want to Live, which is not common on, <laughs> on you know, the big, the big sound systems. And I'm running across the field, and as I'm popping up and down, running slow but steady – I, I'm thinking in my mind, oh, oh, you are playing the wrong song. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I got to the mound, and I threw my eight warm-up pitches, and I'm all bowed up, and then I hang the living daylights out of a slider, and he pops it straight up to the shortstop, and we're out of the inning, and I thought, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Just like I do it. That's great. How would you feel, by the way, if um, if a young Aaron Goldsmith making his Major League debut had uh, – Danger Zone from Top Gun is a oh. walk-up song. Uh, do, do you do you get to wear like the the Foster Grants yeah, and yeah. Yeah. down the Ray yeah. Bands? I got the Edgar glasses on. Oh man, Gary, you approve of that? Yeah, that'd be great. I, that that fits perfectly. Yeah, and Gary's gonna have some Tom Petty song or something for his walk-up. No, song. Bob Dylan, Tangle Up in Blue. That's my walk-up song. That gets you fired up. Sure, it? it's outstanding. <laughs> it's a great song. Can I tell you, Tangled Up in Blue? And I had no idea that Gary was gonna drop this on me, but one of the coolest 
post-game interviews. And, and I don't know if you can pull this up, YouTube it, Google it, but this, this actually happened in the 90s when I was still playing. Bob Welch was, was pitching for the Oakland A's and was being interviewed. And, and, and Bob Welch, had, he, was, he was quirky, he was unique, uh, sometimes odd, but a great pitcher. And he was doing a post-game interview, and he spent the entire interview answering each of the questions he was asked by the radio personality with the name of Bob Dylan songs. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. What? Yes, it, it was That's incredible. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. I've got to find that out. Yeah, it's it's the real deal. And, and and I always remember I am too. I'm a Bob Dylan fan. Mm-hmm. Uh eclectic music taste. But but uh when he would answer questions, you know, Bob, how'd you feel out there tonight? Ah, I got to tell you, I was tangled up in blue. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then the, you know, the next the next the next question would be something and then he would he would immediately pull out another Bob Dylan song and he did the whole interview like that. It was awesome. That's incredible. We definitely have to find that. Yes. Out. Uh Dylan in Seattle uh, has a cooking question, Jerry. As someone who has anxiety about even following a recipe, can you tell us what your first forays into cooking were like? My my first foray into cooking, standard cooking, was was as a teenager coming home from high school and and making eggs on the the, the stove because they're, they're, now you're starving. I'm eating like seven meals a day. <laughs> sure, you know, as as a growing lad, and I started making my own eggs, and then I, I think more. Uh, let's call it more sophisticated cooking. Probably something I started mm, about eight years ago or, or thereabouts. It was uh, seven seven years ago, and uh, started messing around with new or unique things on the grill, things that I'd never cooked before, and you know went out and and started started trying to do something without looking in a cookbook, uh, just by feel. And the first couple of times, maybe not great. You know, it, it's. Uh, it, little bland <laughs> and, and but you you come up with something and you know even today now I'll st- I'll stick with the go-to's you know I used to just go with like st- like a strip steak and then and then you try to get a little bit more adventurous in what you're in what you're creating and you know the worst you can do is make a mistake it's what I tell my barber every couple of weeks when I get my hair cut eh What's the worst you could do? It's hair. It's going to well, grow if back. If they make a mistake, then they're fired. That's how <laughs> I, I mean. See, you make a mistake, it grows back. You make a mistake on the grill, eh, there's always cereal, and you, you can try again tomorrow. <laughs> All right, so it sounds like there wasn't any massive disaster then. No, okay. nothing crazy. All right, very nice. Uh, before uh, we get to uh, uh, around the horn here to wrap things up, I, I do think since we were watching some Orioles take batting practice here at Camden Yards, I, I do think we need to hear about your second big league appearance here in this ballpark. Your second career major league appearance. Yeah, as I mentioned to you when we sat down, and, and I haven't been in this ballpark a ton since that time because I've always been in the West or spent much of the last 15 or so years in the West. But my second big league outing was here in Baltimore. I, I, I was called up to the big leagues in, in early May of 1993, and I made my first outing. I pitched three consecutive days in AAA, went to the big leagues, Cleveland Municipal Stadium, Indians, the old Indians, you know, like the the, the major league version of the Indians, <laughs> uh, and uh, the Indians versus uh, Kansas City, and I and I come in the eighth inning of the game with the tying run on third base to face Mike McFarland. A few short pitches later, I blow my first major league save, uh, which kind of set the tone for my career, <laughs> and and I went ahead and and uh, finished the inning out. We we ultimately I don't pitch again. I think it was for about eight days, and. We went, we finished that homestand, we traveled through Milwaukee, we got here to Baltimore, and I'm sitting down in the bullpen feeling like, eh, not sure they trust me here. <laughs> and 
Uh, we are in the seventh inning of a game. We're losing three to nothing. Former Mariner Matt Young, uh, who threw no hitter in the big leagues, uh, Matt Young was starting for us that night with the with the Indians. And uh, three nothing, seventh inning. I get the call to come in the game with the bases juiced and Cal Ripken up. And I, I throw my eight warm up pitches, and I'm I'm a little rusty. And I throw the first pitch dead down the middle. Uh, and the umpire calls it a ball, and I, and in my head I'm thinking, oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, the, the bat goes on for a while. He hits a little, a little comebacker to me. I, I panicked. I couldn't get rid of it quick enough. We wound up getting one out, and and Cal retired, and the rest of the inning came off the, the the rails. I wound up back in AAA shortly thereafter. A couple of weeks later, I came back to the big leagues and never had to go back. <laughs> so this is the today is the 30th anniversary of Cal's 1,000th consecutive game. Do you think we'll ever see 2,632 in a row like we saw Cal do again? No, and, and I would venture to say I don't even think we're going to come close. Uh, and first of all, it was a lifetime. It was multiple lifetimes between Lou Gehrig and Cal Ripken. It takes a special type of person. It takes an extraordinary amount of luck to get through that. It takes really i mean a grinder's mentality and we know so much more now about science about the science of, of athletes that i'm not sure we would allow it to happen like dr martin would not allow that yeah i mean we're we're going through a four game set thinking oh my gosh we have to give so and so a day off he's played four in a row you know it's just and i think the everyday player you know the guys who take the ball or take the the, the at bats day after day you know guys like Guys like Mitch Hanniger, like Ryan Healy, like Robbie Cano, like Nelson Cruz, who did they show up and they play every day. Think about how difficult it is. Those guys have never done that, you know. As as durable in his career as Robbie has been, he never didn't sniff it. So it's it's remarkable that that Cal was able to do what he did. And I would be absolutely stunned if anybody even really got halfway. I mean, anytime a guy plays a full 162 in a season, it's kind of a big deal nah, I'd throw a party at the end of the year you know bbq at, at aaron's house you know? <laughs> i mean seager uh, there was an article written about it today about the guys who are the closest to it right now right not that there's a streak involved but guys who are just out there what feels like every day and it pointed to kyle seager he's not played any fewer than 154 games in any of his full seasons since he came to the big leagues in 2012 and i know blow and i have talked about this we talk about it it seems like multiple times a year that you can just kind of take for granted the fact that you know Kyle Seager is going to be at third base basically every day of his career, which is pretty amazing. He shows up. And, and I'll say this about Kyle, that, that Kyle, like everybody else, would like to have a day off. He just wants his day off to be as a DH. He wants to get those ABs. And when you have Nelson Cruz, sure. it's really hard to get the day off and still DH. So, you know, for, and that's virtually been, I, I would say, the bulk of Kyle's career has existed with that scenario. And and uh, that has he then has a choice. You can either have a day off where you watch them play or you can just grind through it. And <laughs> he chooses to grind through. I, I bet more often than not, the, the mentality, that blue-collar type dig-in mentality that Kyle possesses, it's that's, I guess, element number one that has to exist for somebody to even get 500 consecutive games into, the, into that record. And when you think about it, that 500 consecutive games is a blip on the radar for what Cal accomplished. It's, it's phenomenal. I mean, would, uh, this might be a ridiculous question, but would an agent allow would – would an agent throw fuss to a team or general manager if their, if their client nowadays, right, compared to when Cal was playing, was, had even gone 500 in a row? Would they be like, hey, uh, Jerry, 
you got to give my guy a break. He's coming up on free agency in a year or something. I mean, is that a thing? I, would, I think it would be a thing. And, and I've never had to deal with that thing because I've never happen. seen anybody sure. come close. Right. But I do think it would be a thing because it's a, it, you need to give these guys time down. And it's especially a thing. I mean, here we are. It's what I think I will call this a cool summer day in, in Baltimore, sure. 82. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was lathery walking here <laughs> from the hotel, just a mile and a half away. Cal did what he did in hot and humid Baltimore through June, July, August, where it is a it is a damp place at that time of year. So it's it's a remarkable achievement. I don't think we'll ever see anything like it again, in, in, in at least in my lifetime. Sure. And it's it's pretty hard for me to believe that knowing what we know now about the science of sport, that the industry would allow it to happen. Well, as we go around the horn to wrap things up, the homestand begins Friday, of course, against Kansas City. Saturday, Jerry, is the highly anticipated turn-ahead-the-clock night. First 20,000 fans taking home the turn-ahead-the-clock cap, thanks to Alaska Air. And you actually played in a turn-ahead-the-clock night game. Most comfortable uniform I ever wore. It was, it was fantastic. And the color scheme was? Uh, black and purple, a touch of white. You know, <laughs> okay. It wasn't the most attractive uniform I ever had on, but the most comfortable, no doubt. Was this a cashmere uniform of some form? Uh, it was silk. <laughs> I mean, it, it had a very silky uh, – uh, there's as you, very rare – when I, I played in layers. So I, I had a – you know, I always wore like a tight T-shirt because I like to feel eh, – Feel yoked. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and a tight T-shirt, and then I would put like regular sleeves over it, and then my uniform top on. And when we wore the 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 turn ahead, the turn ahead, the clock uniform, it was so silky. I thought nothing, <laughs> nothing. Cosmo Kramer's nothing will stand between me and the silky softness of this turn ahead, the clock jersey. It's just me and the jersey. And did this jersey get auctioned off? Is it still in your possession? Is it at Goodwill? Where is it? There's. I don't have that particular jersey. I do have footage wearing these we took a, a group photo uh, in the our bullpen guys we, we actually had some rando fan in st louis take a picture of us. really <laughs> yeah it was great and and uh and and we had uh we had pictures of us in the jersey i didn't save that one it probably wouldn't look great on the wall but <laughs> you're right I, I remember it fondly well uh saturday we have the turn had the clock game sunday james paxton bobblehead day first twenty thousand fans taking it home Thanks to Root Sports. It, is, it will also be Canada Day, and the eagle will be on Paxton's shoulder on the bobblehead. I'm sure everyone has seen the photos of it. We'll have uh, fireworks on Monday. we got Fourth of July, of course, on the homestand. All kinds of good stuff. So be sure to check out Mariners.com to pick up your tickets and for the full schedule. Jerry, this has been a blast, man. Thanks so much. And this has been fun doing it up on the radio booth. It really has. I, I'm, I'm, this is this is double my time. I'm watching DP, <laughs> and I'm getting the joy You're of the podcast. You're scouting and podcasting simultaneously. 